This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We are so glad you could listen into our show today on Workers' Comp Matters. I'm attorney Alan Pierce. I have a law practice in Salem, Massachusetts, where we focus on representing injured workers and their families in workers' compensation cases before the Massachusetts Department of Industrial Accidents and the courts. And we've been doing Workers' Comp Matters programs for Legal Talk Network now for about three years, and we've covered a very wide range of topics And probably the most controversial topic and the most uh, requested program has to deal with the issues surrounding settlement of cases involving Medicare and specifically how to properly close or settle a case and comply with the statutory requirements to create a Medicare set-aside program or allocation or in some cases a trust. And there have been some changes over the last few years. There are going to be some implemented changes in the coming year, 2009, that will affect liability cases more so than workers' comp cases. And to give us an update on where we are with Medicare issues, uh, I have a very special guest in our studio, Attorney Neil Winston. Neil uh, is with the law firm of Moschella in Winston. They are in Somerville, Massachusetts. And Neil and his partner's uh, focus is on the planning for special legal needs of disabled uh, adults and children. He works closely with family members, caregivers, and other professionals to ensure that his clients receive full benefit of programs and support they need. He's a leading authority on government benefit programs, especially Social Security, Medicaid, SSI, and the like. Uh, Neil, welcome very much to this edition of Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. My pleasure to be here today. Well, let's start off very basic and very briefly. What exactly does a workers' comp practitioner, be it an attorney representing an injured worker or an attorney representing an insurance company, need to know about the role that Medicare plays in a case that is going to be settled? Well, when Medicare makes payments, they are conditional based upon their ability to recover if somebody else or some an insurer or other party is going to uh, be liable to make those payments. In other words, they don't want the individual to be able to double dip. Now, Massachusetts, unlike some other jurisdictions, allows the parties to settle a workers' compensation case and keep the medical liability of the insurance company open even after the settlement as opposed to closing it and ending the case in its entirety. That seems to, at least as far as my colleagues and myself in Massachusetts are concerned, really limit our familiarity with how this process works. Now, in states uh, where medicals close upon settlement or in those cases here in Mass where we close medicals, what do we as practitioners have to do and have to be aware of before we consider settling a case? Well, all practitioners have to be aware that even though they settle the case and close their file, the individual is going to continue to need medical assistance. And if your case, if your state or your case has its medical liability left open on behalf of the workers' compensation insurer, then you don't have a problem because Medicare is not going to be asked to sustain ongoing treatment for the individual. They'll just keep through the workers' comp carrier. The problem is is if Medicare uh, now is the only medical carrier out there, they want to have funds set aside so that the settlement will 
offset what they have to pay for the individual's care. And does that mean that if a proper if proper steps were not taken, who will Medicare look to? Would they just simply deny benefits or would they be actually looking to if they paid benefits to recover those benefits or both? Well, the statute states that they will take the entire settlement if this is if this procedure is not properly followed, they'll take the entire settlement and they'll force the individual to prove they spent the entire settlement on work injury-related treatment before they will kick in. Now, are there some threshold dollar limits before a Medicare plan has to be uh, devised and implemented? While this is not being uniformly done across the country, the law states that if an individual is presently on Medicare, if the gross value of the settlement is $25,000 or more, then you have to have a Medicare, a Medicare set-aside account. We call them MSAs. If the individual can be reasonably expected to be on Medicare within 30 months, even though they're not on Medicare at the time of the settlement, then anything for $250,000 and over, you need an MSA. Okay, so somebody who has an application pending for Social Security disability and settles uh, his or her workers' compensation case for $245,000 without liability, in other words, the medicals will close, no Medicare set-aside needed? No Medicare set-aside needed, but the question is, are you reasonably looking to see whether or not the person will be on Medicaid within 30 months? You, you, Medicaid or Medicare? Just can't look the, um, I, I say Medi- Medicare. The partic- practitioner just can't look the other way. Okay. So if, if an application is pending, uh, that would be some evidence of a reasonable expectation. Certainly. And the, 34, the 30 months, I would assume, is the, the six-month disqualification period before you're Medicare eligible and then the two years after you are on Social Security disability? Well, you got the right idea. Um, it's actually a five-month waiting period, plus from the date your Social Security disability insurance benefits start, 24 months. 24 months. So that's where the 30 months come from, even that's though that right. may they, add up they, to 29. They're trying to pick up that group. Okay. Uh, how does one set up a Medicare set-aside? Is it, First of all, do you need a formal trust, or can a simple agreement or bank account suffice? Well, there's really three ways that the, tr- that the so-called account is actually managed. We call them trusts, but really um, there, there are three versions. One is you actually set up a real trust, and this is particularly important for individuals who are receiving other types of public benefits that might be uh, subject to accountability for funds being put into one of these Medicare set-aside arrangements. You're talking about like SSI or Supplemental Security Income, which is need-based. And also Medicaid in some states as well. That's right. And uh, another arrangement uh, would be where you actually just deposit the money with a Medicare administrator, and these are private groups that really just pay bills, and they put the funds in a uh, escrow account, and they just pay out. They're like an administrator. And the third way are self-administration. And interestingly enough, most Medicare set-asides up to now are self-administered, meaning by the worker or somebody connected with the worker. So would that be the role of the worker's attorney to allocate a certain amount of monies and set up, in essence, an escrow account or a client fund account labeled what Medicare set-aside account? The general answer is yes on that. The specific answer is you have to figure out how much to set aside, and then you have to make a proposal to the uh, contractor who handles these things for Medicaid and get them to agree. All right. Uh, let's walk us through the process. Uh, I'm representing a client, and I've, 
I'm preparing to settle his case for $150,000, and he is either Medicare eligible or I have a reason to think he will be, and the medicals will be closed out with the settlement. What's the first thing I do? If you follow the law to the letter, and I don't think that many people do, um, at the onset of your case, you're supposed to contact the Medicare Coordination of Benefits contractor who's located in Detroit and put them on notice that you have a claim and that there will eventually be a some sort of a settlement. All right. How, what is the contact information? I know it can be done online, but uh, for our listeners, why don't you give us an idea of where they can get that? And Okay. For those of you who don't have a pencil, uh, you can go to cms.gov. Remember the .gov and not .com. Go to .gov or medicare.gov and you can and you just key up workers' compensation, and you'll go through a whole list of where you can get the stuff. But if you uh, want to know the, the address, it's called MSP Claims Investigation Project, and this is under the Medicare Coordination of Benefits Contractor, P.O. Box 33847, Detroit, Michigan, 48232. Uh, I don't have the 800 number, but I know it's on the website, and you can actually call them. All right. So when you either initiate contact by phone, email, or letter, what next happens? They will send you uh, forms asking you all kinds of detail, who the insurer is, the name of the claimant, the date of the injury, what type of services are getting. And this is an information gathering procedure at this point because presumably you haven't settled your case yet. If you've already settled your case, then then this is a, an exercise you have to go through before they will go any further with you. And so you fill out the forms. Do you get a identification number, a person to deal with? Is it somebody local? How does that work? Well, the individual's social security number becomes their identifying number. Um, most of this is not done with a human being that you meet and know at the other end. You're really dealing with some bureaucracy who who does this. They really don't want you to uh, do telephone calls. Now, when I say this, I say this very generally because I'm when I talk to people around the country, they say, well, in my region, they do it this way. In my region, they do it that way. So you're, you're going to see an enforcement procedure that's much different. Uh, in Massachusetts, for example, at one point, they had a contractor you could actually call up, or they were doing it through the regional Medicare office, and you get to know somebody. But I, I hear in a lot of places, it's strictly paperwork. Okay. How many regions are there across the country? Well, um, the, there, there's actually uh, six regions and um, they're broken up in the Boston region, which has um, the – it includes New York and the New England states and, and also uh, the Virgin Islands. And then the Philadelphia region, which is kind of the, the middle states from uh, Tennessee northward up to Pennsylvania. Oh, and includes Florida and Delaware also. And then the Chicago region, which kind of is the Midwest states – about halfway down, and then the Dallas region, which is the rest of the south going all the way, all the way over to New Mexico, and then um, the San Francisco region, of course, which is the whole west coast uh, south, and then the Seattle region, which is uh, Oregon and Washington, uh, and they, they pull in a couple of Midwest states, Iowa. It's Nobody knows why they divide up this way. Okay. Now, how? what is the process by which a sum of money is determined to be the amount that would be set aside? Is this a negotiated amount? Does the attorney or somebody on his behalf submit a proposal? How do they get the raw numbers that go yeah. into that? It is strictly a negotiated amount. And um, in fact, if you were to go on the website and you were to type in Medicare set-aside trust or Google it, you would find that um, there's a lot of, uh, of groups – 
or law firms or whatever out there who specialize in this. And they and I know one I was looking at the other day, they advertise that this is what our competitors do and this is what we do. We can do a lot better than them. So it's truly a negotiation, and I know that works that way across the country. And uh, a, a proposal is submitted to Medicare with a dollar amount to be set aside for future medical costs. What is the expected time frame to get a response? Well, it, the, the, it's variable. Um, you can it can be as short as a couple of months, but I'm told by most that it's it, it's the, usually the process from beginning to end is at least several months long, and it can be very uh, upsetting, especially if your insurers put the uh, uh, put a, a check with Medicare and your signature on it. Then I guess the next question is: Can you settle the case before all the eyes are dotted and the T's are crossed by Medicare? Well, you can certainly settle the case. The real liability lies with the insurer who can get hit for double damages if they don't uh, follow this procedure. Uh, it's, it's, it's statutory and it's been, in, it's been in effect for at least a couple of decades, but they haven't been enforcing it. The, the attorney uh, – we have an anecdotal case in Texas at least in which the attorney has been notified that they're going to be um, uh, sued for a 2003 settlement they did in which they didn't go through the procedure. And in terms of the procedure, um, when you say it's a negotiated amount, uh, it's basically back and forth between the contractor and the person who has made the proposal. What what evidence would the contractor have to challenge an amount? Well, um, they're really relying on the information that you provide. And um, I I think they probably look – they want to see the medical records. And in the beginning, uh, they're going to – ask a lot of specific information. They will look at the history of how much care they've already paid for, and they'll use that as a basis for how much care the person might need in the future. And so that'll just, just be a multiple. And, and who you, are these contractors? Are they employees of the federal government? Are they, in fact, contractors, private individuals under a contract with the government to do this work? Yes, they're, they're uh, coordinated. They're, they are the COBC, this uh, coordinator of uh, Benefits contractor coordination events contractor out of uh, out of Detroit. I'm not really sure uh, when you when you call the number, you just get the same person. I don't think I've ever asked. Him. And your firm creates as Medicare set asides and, and handles the process for attorneys. Do you or for insurers? Yes, we do. All right. What is without pinning it down too much? What is the general cost range for putting together a Medicare set aside agreement in a typical workers' compensation case? Well, the the range has been as low as twenty five hundred dollars, and for a very complex case, if depending on you know the situation and so forth, it could be as much as ten thousand dollars. Now, does in order to do this, does this require also the hiring of a medical expert, a medical provider to assess costs, or is it done primarily by analyzing the bills that have been submitted to date and what? The medical reports indicate the future medical needs might be. Well, probably the better way is for me just to give you an idea of what, when we put together these things, what might be needed, depending on the complexity of the case. If you have a, um, you know, something like a broken bone type of situation and you're settling it, then I think it's relatively definable. But if you have a very complex psychiatric case or something in which you're going to have a lot of unknowns in the future, including drug benefits, by the way, since 2006, the, uh, since Part D has come in, you have to include that. Um, it can be quite elaborate. Some of the things that we would look for are similar to what a litigator would put together or a, or a workers' compensation practitioner, life expectancy, a life care plan, 
the of course the amount in the agreement. They're going to look to see uh, that what the current treatment is, what the future treatment is, uh, the medications, um, the prognosis of how long this is going to last, um, the uh, calculation method of how the workers' compensation is paid out, and and identity of the amount. You know, there's just there's just a lot of things that you have to put into it, and it's still based on how complex you get is the complexity of the case. How long do the Medicare set-aside trusts or agreements or accounts have to last, or is there a time frame put on it? Yeah. There's no set time. On the other hand, the agency has the ability to come back and audit what has been done out of it. In other words, you can't pay for certain things. You only pay for medical treatment. And supposedly, it's to be done at the Medicare rate as well. So that's why a lot of practitioners um, will end up going to one of these uh, administrators who who have uh, their programs all set up to pay at the Medicare rate when treatment is done. Yeah, I, I mean, in thinking this through, and again, uh, personally, I've not had to deal with this coming from Massachusetts, and I expect I will have to, and I've already got a couple of cases in the pipeline now that uh, are going to need this. But it would seem to me, aside from being a burden on my client and or myself, it's a burden on the medical provider because they're not billing Medicare anymore, or they wouldn't be billing Medicare. They'd be billing the administrator of this trust, but they would have to use the Medicare what, uh, codes and the, the billing structure and you know, dealing with a private individual. I know most Billing offices for medical providers would much rather deal with an institution than a right. lawyer or, or my client. That is right. Supposedly, that's the way it's supposed to be done. From a practical perspective, the ones I've been involved in, a doctor bills, you pay the doctor for the service. And as long as it's related to the Medicare cover, uh, you know, the workers' comp uh, injury service, then when it runs out, then Medicare picks it up. I don't think the I think the real issue is the program is not in full effect, and they haven't really tightened it up. They're just trying to get people to understand and start to comply yep. with it at this point. And let's just sort of step back and look at a little history of this. I think when all of this came together, whether it was a couple of decades ago or when it really came to the surface within the last three or four years, I don't have the numbers at my fingertips, but my understanding was the cost shifting from workers' comp to the Medicare social security system was in the multiples of tens of billions of dollars a year. And that, that has really been the rationale behind this, that industry and work, whether it's workers' comp, automobile liability, or other types of insurances, quickly or maybe sometimes not so quickly, just neat and clean, cut off their liability, and all of a sudden the, the shifting of the costs in the future goes to the federal government and the taxpayers, to the tunes of those billions. It's always been that way. Just like uh, trying to shift uh, a workers' compensation uh, weekly benefit settlement off to SSDI. Right. And of course, SD, SSDI has, over the years, always tightened its its requirements of how you do that. And of course, those of us who do workers' comp at least allocate over life expectancy in the so-called charade allocations. But again, this is a a variation of that theme. That, uh, That's we, right. And, and until the day we have some type of universal medical coverage, we are going to be struggling, whether it's within the settlement of cases issue or the access to medical care issue is who pays the cost. And I think the government's going to find it very, very difficult to uniformly enforce this. It's I was just, just going so to say, just in Massachusetts, I mean, we have tens of thousands of cases that go through the system per year. When you multiply that by the 50 states and the districts and the other uh, jurisdictions, not to mention personal injury claims, 
it would be a massive undertaking to be able to uh, stay on top of this and enforce it. Yeah. There are billions of Medicare claims each year. And even if your number is keyed in, they can only list so much. Well, they do only list so many categories of payment. I mean, this all has to be done by computer, uh, you know, uh, sorting out. And and is a psychiatric injury related to you know somebody who takes somebody out of work? Is that related or not related? You can just imagine the problems. Oh, I can imagine the problems. I mean, I have it even without the Medicare issues. You settle a case for a, a herniated disc, and then years later, you, the the patient needs a spinal fusion, but there has been an advancement of the underlying degenerative disease process. Workers' comp has denied it. The denial is upheld, yet Social Security or Medicare is going to say, hey, this is the back. One more step in the process when you have different entities paying for something or trying to shift or control the responsibility. All right. I know this is an extremely difficult topic to even cover in the limited amount of time that we do. Can you give our listeners some resources for printed materials, materials online, and your own contact information for them to be able to do this themselves or to access professionals that can walk them through the process? Well, I've already mentioned you know, that you can certainly Google things, but there's a couple of, uh, of entities that uh, are and attorneys who specialize in this. The first one is a group that I'm a member of, an invitational group. It's a nonprofit organization, but of course, uh, it's there's an attorney at the other end. It's called the Special Needs Alliance. And uh, if you go to on the internet, you go to Special Needs Alliance, one word, dot org. You can then get an attorney that's located in your state who you would contact. Uh, in terms of resources. Um, there's an, uh, a book that has been written that has a section on this, which uh, it's absolutely the best and most concise way, and it just came out. It's called The Special Needs Trust Handbook, written by a couple of very well-known elder law attorneys, Thomas Begley in New Jersey and Angela Canellos in Wisconsin. Who publishes it? This is published by Aspen Publishers, and uh, the chapter that I'm particularly pointing out is Chapter 12, Medicare Set-Aside Arrangements, and it just could walk you through doing it yourself if you so desired. Of course, there's practitioners out there who specialize in this, and there's a lot of people who advertise they specialize. Well, at this point, I think, Neil, we're going to take a quick break and come back with you uh, to talk about the case of the day, and uh, we'll be right back. Workers' Comp Matters with attorney Alan S. Pierce is produced right here at the Legal Talk Network by a staff of professional news broadcasters. We're the only ones who can provide the best quality shows with the latest legal news, talk, and information in an interactive format you won't find anywhere else. We hope you listen to one of our brand new shows here on the Legal Talk Network, In-House Legal, with attorney Paul Boyton, experienced in all things in-house. If you're interested in the top issues, news, and trends inside the corporate legal department, you'll want to listen to In-House Legal. Starts January 12th. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen now, download the show, or even better, subscribe to the RSS feed. It's free. Well, 
Well, welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network, where we have been talking with attorney Neil Winston from the firm of Morshella and Winston in Somerville, Massachusetts. I've known Neil for a number of years. Uh, we've worked together on putting together a, a special needs uh, trust for um, the catastrophically injured clients. And uh, I've also known him over the years as somebody who has handled workers' compensation cases. So he is well aware of the issues that we deal with, and he has represented people before the industrial board, as have I. We have a feature on workers' comp matters called Case of the Day, and um, this is right up Neil's alley. He is uh, – I'm going to give him the facts of a case and see if he can come up with the correct um, analysis that the courts used. Um, this case um, is a Connecticut case. It's Labadee versus Norwalk Rehabilitation Services, and it's a going and coming rule case. And uh, – as many of you know, there is a body of law that indicates that an injured worker is not covered for workers' comp, is not within his or her course of employment if he or she is commuting to or from work. Now, in this case, Rose Labadee was a home health aide, and part of her job was to travel to homes of clients and perform services and go from one client to another. And she didn't drive. She took a bus, and on the day in question, she boarded the bus. She left... Uh, from her home and was on her way to a client's home. She got off the bus and was crossing the street. She was hit by a car. She was originally given workers' comp benefits, but the matter was appealed by the insurance company to the Workers' Comp Review Board in Connecticut, and they held that she was not yet in the course of her employment. She had not arrived at the client's home, that she was simply commuting to work. She was in a public crosswalk. She hadn't begun the workday. And they reversed and they denied benefits. Now, Rose uh, took an appeal uh, to the appellate court in Connecticut. And given the limited facts I gave you, what do you think the court did? Well, I have to tell you, you didn't tell me the answer ahead of time. So this isn't a setup. Um, well, the, the, the coming and going rule, of course, bases on whether or not you're in the course of your employment at the time of the accident. I know that if you're in a parking lot, and your employer's premises, even though you haven't punched in yet, you would be covered. Because I had that case in Massachusetts. I remember you did. And um, so um, I think that I, – I think the right answer is since she is re required to go to the individual's home in order to start work. And I, I, you didn't give me one fact I thought would be important. When did her pay start? Uh, you know, you, you, I left out a fact on purpose. And it, it isn't when her pay started. But she was paid for the travel. They reimbursed her her bus fare. Okay. I got the answer. And I would and, say and, uh, That should give you the answer. That, that she's absolutely covered. She was covered. Okay. And that, that gives us a good example that uh, workers' comp cases, while the underlying foundation is pretty much consistent across the country, every state's jurisdiction analyzes these cases differently. They're all very much fact-dependent. And sometimes something as simple as being reimbursed either in whole or part for travel is enough to bring you within the course of your employment. So you are zeroing in right on what the court used as their primary reason for reversing the denial and awarding her benefits, that the employer was gaining a benefit from the travel. It was essential to the performance of her job. They were paying for it, and she should not bear the risk of injury crossing the street. Yeah. I, I had a similar case in which the person was on call, and because he was on call when he got hurt on the subway on his way home because he would have had to turn around and come back to work, the Massachusetts Board on Appeal awarded him coverage. Yep. 
All right. Well, th- th- thank you for your analysis, Neil. You were right on point. Um, as we close, uh, is, what is probably the single most important thing those of us who handle workers' comp need to remember before we make any decisions about settling a case? Well, you have to be aware that the, that if you're being paid by a government entity, whether it's Medicare or Medicaid, there's going to be a lien out there that they're going to want to collect on, not just on the going forward as the Medicare set aside, but also the lien going backwards if, in fact, they're keeping track of these payments and they legally have a lien. Now, it differs from state to state. In our state, I know the Medicaid is not very well enforced, but um, I think at some point you're going to see government entities becoming more and more. And with the admin of the computer and being able to track things by Social Security numbers, I think we're going to see more and more enforcement. The second thing is this Medicare uh, third-party payor uh, liability, it's been around for 20-some years or so, and it hasn't been enforced. But that's not to say that they couldn't try and retroactively or selectively enforce it if they see a particularly egregious case in which somebody tried to avoid something. I think the only choice you have is to report it and then move forward. Be careful. You could have personal liability. Okay. Neil, and how, how might uh, our listeners contact you if they want uh, additional information or resources? Well, uh, you can... Contact me uh, through my website where you have information. My firm is michellawinston.com. It's M-O-S-C-H-E-L-L-A Winston, W-I-N-S-T-O-N.com, one word. And my phone number? Go right ahead. 617-776-3300. And you can Google my name, Neil Winston, if you wish. Neil, I, I, I want to thank you again for uh, visiting with us today on Workers' Comp Matters. Uh, as always, you've been uh, very helpful and very informational, and I'm glad that you could join us. I hope uh, those of you listening enjoyed the show and, and will follow up with Neil or the citations and resources he gave you. Uh, we hope uh, that you will continue to listen to our shows. Thanks for listening today. I'm Attorney Alan Pierce. Please go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.